Hello, this is Mike Dobson welcoming you back to another edition of the Anesthesia Compass podcast. Last week, we were given a preview of Paul Fenton's memoirs from his time in Malawi. He's carrying on now from where he left off last time. So in welcoming him back, I'll hand over to him. In the last part, we heard about trying to find money to start a training school for anesthesia. But we also heard that the justification for that school was difficult to convince people about. But fear is second only to enthusiasm for oiling the wheels of progress. And although no one at the ministry knew about us or what we did, our department and, and future school of the unknown specialty went through all the official clearance and approval processes in no time at all. Even when the building works subsequently went three times over budget, no problem. In 1989, the project was costed at 89,000 kwacha. Today, you would have trouble paying for a round of drinks with that. To avoid the appearance of expat fitting up something behind back of African, Hardcastle told me, confidentially, that he would give us a reason for his strange support of my school of the unknown specialty, the fact that in his travels around the country, he had just come across the astonishing fact that QECH did not have a department or training program in anesthesia and needed one urgently. Quite extraordinary, really, considering the hospital had managed without one for 30 years. Luckily, the ministry would not know that there were actually no departments of any speciality at QECH. Apart from the administration, it was a hospital that consisted almost entirely of beds and patients. There was a pharmacy and a mortuary, of course. That was always the problem for development man. To get anything done, one needed to go around one way to get knowledge of available funds, find out the latest donor fad, buzzwords and language to soften up the foreign decision makers in their embassies and in Europe but also go around the other way through the ministry with official documentation to give the appearance that one's project was a felt need, just part of the great general development 10-year plan for the nation. These two endeavours must never meet in their respective trajectories, of course, and an individual's expatriate name, especially if he's revealed as the worst sort, a clinician working in the field, should never ever under any circumstances appear anywhere on any document associated with a second trajectory. That must be government business. The donors would immediately realize that the said clinician had hatched a personal pet project as part of his own contract renewing career development survival strategy and veto it. External consultants, no matter what their disguise, are notorious contract keepers who seek out unforeseen complications in any project that require them to stay longer than expected. On a later occasion, a visiting delegation from Brussels, headed by a fierce woman, Madame Brevet, was reviewing projects for possible EU funding. After years of careful alignment, my regional anesthesia training school, RATS, was on the agenda. After piloting in Malawi, there would be linked nurse anesthetist training school 
with a shared curriculum over the whole Southern African region. I warned my tame development men at the EU mission in, in Lilongwe that they must be very careful about presenting everything as coming from the ministry, positioning rats as the training component of the district hospital building program that the EU was then funding. But apparently somebody blurted out in Dr. Fenton's report, and that was it. Madame Breve realized she'd been fitted up, shouted, no individual projects, and they moved on. Years of work were cast aside at a stroke. I tried rats on Bill Gates the following year, using the approved methodology, of course, never even got a reply. Rats died after that. But I could see it from their side, a donor trap. Worse than being suckered by self-serving contract keepers, was getting drawn into the bottomless pit of paying for healthcare in a country like Malawi. Every project had to have its exit point in plain view. Even so, you might think, <coughs> the cost per graduate of just $2,950, which over the 30 years plus of the school's output of about 250 clinical officers, graduates, adds up to an overall cost of half a million dollars, providing the entire anesthetic workforce of the nation, that aid agencies, or perhaps some of the new wave of Gates-inspired wealthy philanthropists, with their hearts recently bleeding from signing the giving pledge, would pick up such a finite, well-circumscribed, road-tested and worthwhile project to support. Well, you'd be wrong. It could only achieved, be achieved by chance, luck, lies and trickery, even though the hospital itself could boast the most cost-effective, the most egalitarian, the least urban elitist service imaginable. Patients came from all over. Most were seen eventually, sometimes by world leaders in their field, and nobody got charged. It was like the UK NHS in that respect. For example, a child of five months had his hernia repaired. One of my trainees gave the anesthesia, paid by the Malawi government and our departmental slush fund, teaching allowance. An expatriate surgeon paid by the Dutch government did the surgery. He was assisted by a Malawian government nurse who scrubbed. There was no runner as there's a chronic shortage of nurses gone to greener pastures like the private sector or the UK NHS. The theatre itself had been built using money from UNHCR, using leftover funds from the Mozambican refugee crisis of a decade before. The operating table was a Japanese donation. The anesthesia machine came from Danida, the Danish aid agency. The oxygen source was a concentrator given by another donor, now forgotten. The breathing system I made from donated bits and pieces. There was no cannula for an intravenous drip out of stock and only two drugs were used, halothane to go to sleep and intramuscular succimothonium, a relaxant needed to pass a breathing tube. Both donations from a school in Yorkshire organized by a former teacher who still remembered his old home. One new two mil syringe and needle was found in a box of donations. The laryngoscope fell into my pocket, its final resting place, somewhere long ago the tracheal tube and airway from another box. The sutures were donated by forgotten well-wishers. 
So many things arrive, one loses track of it all. The surgical instruments were part of a donation from Rotary International, the autoclave also. That's how Malawi will always survive. The world would not let it die. There are too many outsiders who love the place and the people. The total patient workup was written on one piece of paper pinned to the ragged clothing, having the consistency of Bronco toilet paper, three by three inches. It had the patient's name and for RIH repair written on it. The surgeon added the word done with a tick and the job was indeed done. He borrowed my drug company pen. The case was written in the theatre log. But there was no anaesthetic record, as we would not use our scarce charts. We have to print ourselves for such a minor case. The Bronco paper, the scrub nurse, and half of the anaesthetist were the only detectable Malawi government contributions to the entire operation that would, in theory, appear on the, on the health budget accounts of the Ministry of Health as a curative service expenditure and allocated a tariff for the donors to see and for the World Bank to add to its calculations of per capita health spending to make up the tables of poverty in the bank's annual report on the state of Africa. The actual costs of performing the operation were unknown and not available for anyone's scrutiny. If anybody wanted to know, I once estimated that such a procedure cost about $30 and nobody paid. It was a free operation. All went well and the child was drinking within 30 minutes, requiring no painkillers. So we of the hospital curative services didn't need to worry about using up all the money, $5 per capita per annum at that time, <coughs> a mixture of donor support and internal government revenue that is more properly allocated to primary healthcare projects because we are using invisible funds that we have raised ourselves as individuals. For some reason, during 15 years of being in Malawi, I never saw a glimmer of interest in these health economic facts from the field from any of the major aid donors or their new noisy successors today, the hand-wringing, TED-talking, upwardly mobile NGO global health types who are always on about bringing change or saving lives in poor countries. But little people still supported Queens with odd amounts they had raised even though it was a shithole, to use the modern US terminology. One day, I was walking into a particularly noxious ward, male medical 3B, and found painters busy at work releasing a wonderful smell which cancelled out the normal miasma. The entire ward was being repainted, paid for by an English junior physician who'd worked there for a couple of years, now gone home. Work on our new school of anesthesia started on schedule. That is, some workers were dropped off from a truck and stood around on the designated site, exactly where the Sanjika Land Rover had stood only a year before. Sorry, half a year before. They had no tools of any sort and sat in the shade. The morning passed this way, so in the afternoon, I went home and collected my garden spades, picks and forks, and brought them back to get things moving. I also brought my camera and posed with the workers and tools to take a memorial photograph to go with an article I was doing for the national newspaper entitled Development in Malawi, Laying the Foundations of the Future School of Anesthesia. 
the white man toiling with the black man. What, what? There was only one newspaper during the time of one party rule in Malawi, the Daily Times. It had three functions, as a mouthpiece for the ruling Malawi Congress party, to inform readers of interesting things the president was saying and doing, and thirdly, to relay how much development there was going on in the country since H.E. had come back in 1958 and found his people literally naked. The word development had to appear on every page, but otherwise proofreading was patchy. Vote for black cock, exclaimed one banner headline, the burning question being the emblem of the MCP when one party elections were taking place. There was also a classified section which told you what films were showing in Malawi's only cinema, the Apollo. Once they were showing A Fistful of Dollars, starring Clink Eastwood. The next day came a correction. Apology. The film had been incorrectly announced yesterday. It actually stars Cunt Eastwood. Regarding our building site, there was no film in my camera and no article would be written. But that did not matter. News of the politics and possible criticism of the Public Works Department delaying this important presidential project soon got back to headquarters and digging began in earnest a few days later. We knew this because the whole area became flooded with water as somebody's pick located the water main for the operating theatre. This further increased our popularity with the surgeons. Nobody knew where the pipes were. Despite all the negative perspectives, i.e. another building to fall down, delaying the start of the operating list, wasting time giving, teaching, anesthesia, what do you actually talk about, etc., etc. I've heard them all. The new department was opened in 1991. It was the only clinical department and on-site training school in the entire 1,200-bed hospital, located right next to the operating theatre. I could be at my computer, the first ever seen in a government clinical setting, writing letters one minute, and the next investigating the cause of any gurgling noises or excessive screaming in the theatre corridors, or even be inside theatre looking down a patient's throat for a misbehaving larynx. Anesthesia had arrived, all thanks to no oxygen and a hypoxic kamuzu two years before. The theatre nurses took it in turns to come and marvel. Is this Queen's? One asked in wonderment, not believing that such commercial sector opulence could exist in a government institution, which subsisted on 25,000 US dollars per month, equivalent to 68 US cents per patient per day, approximately one two thousandth of that in the UK. Much of that money was spent on water bills, as there were so many leaks in the underground pipes. The hospital lived on month-to-month -month budgeting, otherwise it would have been bankrupt by the end of February each year. The VVIP ICU rush project for H.E. Kamuzu and Mama got delayed for two years, but by then the winds of change were blowing strongly. A referendum forced on Banda by the aid donors had come out in favour of multi-party democracy and people did not fear the works of their Kamuzu as before. The money disappeared and the project was never finished. It remained a large empty room with a massive concrete block set in the middle, the nurses station. 
Then, for the next 10 years, it was used as a storeroom for unusable medical junk donated by well-wishers. There was tons of it. You could hardly get in the door. H.E. was turning in his grave. On the other side of the clutter, I discovered the presidential private W.C. Lock on the door, seat, plumbed in, ready to go. The usual theatre W.C. was only bearable for the briefest hands-off number one calls of nature. But few people knew about this alternative. So that was a useful development and a fitting epitaph to this particular bit of health ministry planning. All you needed was to sit down, close your eyes and think of oxygen and bring your own paper. Thanks again, Paul, for coming on the podcast. At this point, it's normal to give a plug for the book and tell people how they can get hold of a copy. I don't think it's quite reached that stage of publication yet, but I will certainly pass on information about how people can get your book as and when it becomes ready. Next week, we'll be looking at a very different sort of project. The Africa Mercy is the world's largest floating hospital, operated by Mercy Ships. It's got five operating theatres and provides a program of life-changing surgery wherever it's stationed, as well as a training program that includes primary trauma care and safe courses. I'll be talking to Michelle White, now working as a consultant anaesthetist at Great Ormond Street, about her experiences as a clinical anaesthetist as well as her role as medical director of the ship. It's not too late to enrol for the virtual course on developing world anaesthesia, which will be held on November the 26th. You can find further details about that on the Royal College of Anaesthetists website under the events heading. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to the Anaesthesia Compass podcasts, available from wherever you normally get your podcasts. And now it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.